May I encourage you to turn with me in your own Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Follow please as I read beginning at verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach for foods, but God shall bring to naught both it and them. But the body is not for fornication or sexual uncleanness, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised the Lord and will raise up us through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Or do you not know that he that is joined to a harlot is one body? For the two said he shall become one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee sexual uncleanness. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits sexual uncleanness sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. And if you are reading a version of the scripture that goes on to say, and in your spirit, which are his, there is very little solid textual evidence that Paul wrote any such words. It was some people who felt this was too crassly sensual and earthly and tangible and had to make it a little more spiritual but the words given by the Holy Spirit were glorify God therefore in your body period full stop now it is evident as we've already announced and as we see from the spread table before us that the culmination of this service will be an act of obedience on the part of God's people to remember the Lord Jesus in the way of his appointment by the eating of bread and the drinking together of the fruit of the vine. And here I am tonight about to bring the fourth message in a brief series entitled The Divine Antidote to Sexual Impurity or more positively stated The Divine Prescription for Sexual Purity and I trust it will be both. Surely some may say, few subjects could be less fitting and more inappropriate for a communion service than the subject, the divine antidote to sexual impurity. Now I can understand why some might think that way. However, if you will listen and carefully attend to the word of God that I trust you have opened before you, as together we look at this portion of God's word, I trust you will be persuaded that few subjects could be more evidently appropriate 
then this subject as it is handled by the Apostle Paul in the passage read in your hearing. In the first three messages on this subject of the divine antidote to sexual impurity or the divine prescription for sexual purity, I set before you four propositions which I use to embody some of the most basic teaching of the Word of God on the issue of sexual purity. Given the time constraints, I cannot go back and repeat those four propositions, much less open up the many scriptures that we studied together. The messages are on tape. The series is, in a very real sense, a fabric of truth, and I trust that none would detach what we hear tonight from the previous three, or stop with the previous three and detach it from our meditation tonight, and God willing, the completion of this series next Lord's Day evening. Tonight, I want all of our attention to be given to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and if I were to give a title to our subject tonight or to our study in the Word of God, it would be this. As a Christian, a biblical understanding of my body is essential to sexual purity. As a Christian, what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20 is directed to Christians, to people who have heard the gospel and by the power of the Spirit have come to see their desperate need of Christ, and by the same working of the Spirit have been brought to repentance and faith. They are not strangers to the new birth, to what it is to be constrained now by the love of Christ and other gospel motives. And in this passage, what we have is Paul's directive to these saints at Corinth that they must, as Christians, have a biblical understanding of their bodies if they are to maintain sexual purity, especially in a pagan society where sexual uncleanness hung in the air like fog. Now, why do I state the essence of the teaching in this passage in these words? Well, for the simple reason that we have two imperatives in the passage. If you were listening carefully, you would have picked up that in verse 18, there is a simple, straightforward, terse imperative, flee fornication, run from sexual impurity. That's the negative. Then in verse 20, you have the second and the only other imperative in this paragraph, glorify God therefore in your body. Now surely those two imperatives should be enough for any Christian to avoid sexual impurity. God says, run from it, and in place of sexual impurity from which you run, bring glory to God in your body. Use your bodily functions in such a way that it reflects the honor and the glory of the God who in Christ has redeemed you and would give no thoughtful person reason to conclude that you were using your body as a sensual playground or a tool of the devil to bring dishonor to God. But you see, the Apostle Paul is not convinced that those two imperatives stripped of gospel motives would be sufficient for the Lord's people. If God thought that the mere commands, 
flee sexual impurity, glorify God in your body. If those naked commands were enough, that's all God would give us. But he's done more than that. He has surrounded those imperatives with a biblical theology of the body of a Christian. For the most frequently used noun in this paragraph is the Greek word soma. It's the word that refers to the body. Eight times Paul uses the word the body. The body, the body, the body. And the message that comes through to these Corinthians and to us, if we follow the track of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to the mind and pen of the apostle is, as a Christian, a biblical understanding of my body is essential to sexual purity. Now what I propose to do within the added time constraints of a communion meditation is to look with you from the passage at five principles which the Apostle Paul sets before us in enabling us as Christians to have a biblical understanding of our bodies with a view to obeying the imperatives, flee sexual impurity, glorify God in your body. Principle number one is this. My body has been given to me to serve Jesus Christ the Lord in this world and in the age to come. What is my body for? My body has been given to me to serve Jesus Christ the Lord in this world and in the age to come. That's the essential teaching of verses 13 and 14 of this paragraph. Passing over the significance of verse 12, and it does have significance for the Corinthians, but is not essential to our understanding of these principles, notice what the Apostle says in verse 13. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach for foods. But God shall bring to naught both it and them. God will render inoperative both the stomach and food that is suitable for the stomach. But the body is not for sexual uncleanness, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised the Lord and will raise us up through His power. Now what in the world is Paul saying? Well, basically this. Apparently there was a saying go around, going around in Corinthians. It's among the Corinthians there at Corinth. That it is obvious that foods are made for the stomach, the digestive system, and the digestive system is perfectly suited to receive food. So you have the saying, foods for the stomach and the stomach for food. And apparently, this can't be established with dogmatism, apparently some were also saying in the same way as there is this congruity and suitability between food and the digestive system, foods, meats, and the stomach, likewise, you have the body that is suited for fornication, it has its sexual appetites and powers and drives and capacities, and you have fornication that is suitable to the body and its appetites and its passions. So it's logical, is it not? 
If a loving God made foods, he made them to be consumed by men's men's bellies. So he makes a belly suitable for food and food for the belly in the same way. He makes a body that has sexual appetites and passions and fornication relieves the passions, gratifies the appetites. The appetites are suitable to the body, the body to the appetites. Paul said no. No, you've totally misunderstood what your body is for. So he answers by saying, look at the text, foods for the belly or the stomach, and the stomach for foods, but that is not to go on forever. God shall bring to naught both it and them. In the resurrection, we will not have the precise same physical constitution that we now have. There will be no necessity to consume food. Apparently, our glorified bodies will not have the same digestive system that we now have. Paul can say, God shall bring to naught both it and them, and then he takes up their second premise, but the body is not for sexual impurity, for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body is given to you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. Your body is not given to you with all of its capacities and appetites. Physical appetites for food. Sexual appetites for sexual gratification. That body with all of its appetites and passions was not given to be your personal playground. That body was given for the service of the Lord. And for you who are believers, Paul says, that body in a unique way is not for sexual uncleanness, but it is for the Lord. And the Lord is committed to the good and the well-being of that body. And it's as though someone says, well, how do we know that? Paul says, God will even go to the trouble of raising it from the dead. Look at the next part of the verse. How do we know the Lord is committed to the body? God both raised the Lord, speaking of the Lord Jesus, and will raise us up through His power. The acme of the glory of the Christian is not the disembodied state when the Spirit leaves this body and in an instant of time is made perfect in holiness, joins the spirits of just men made perfect, but the hope of the Christian goes beyond the intermediate state. Yes, to depart and be with Christ is far better. But the hope of the Christian in the Bible is not defined as the intermediate state, but it is the glorified state at the coming of the Lord Jesus, when our bodies shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall have bodies fashioned, Paul says, like unto the body of His glory. So for these Corinthians struggling with a society in which sexual uncleanness was not only accepted by the rank and file of people, it was augmented to the place of a sacred act of worship. And there were men in the Corinthian church who had been brought up in a society in which part of the religious ritual into which you were introduced as a young man was having intercourse with temple prostitutes as an expression of worship to the gods. That's how much they had sunk 
in the wretched moral degeneration that accompanies idolatry. And now Paul comes along and says, look, if you're to flee sexual uncleanness, if you're to glorify God in your body, get this principle firmly embedded in your soul. My body has been given to me to serve Jesus Christ the Lord in this world and in the next. That's principle number one. Principle number two, verses 14 to 17. My body and my spirit are in Separably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. My body and my spirit are inseparably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies, doesn't say you, but your bodies, soma, your physical constitution, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, of a prostitute? May it never be. God forbid. Or do you not know that he that is joined to a harlot, to a prostitute, is one body? For the two said, He shall become one flesh. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. What is Paul doing? He is planting the lofty doctrine of the believer's union with Christ smack down in the midst of the moral mess at Corinth. And he's saying to these believers, If you're going to flee sexual uncleanness, if you're to glorify God in your body, get hold of this truth that as a Christian, your body and spirit are inseparably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. I did not say a carnal union, but a spiritual union. But because it's spiritual, it doesn't mean that it's not real. Paul says it's so real that when you Corinthians who are united to Christ, Join yourself in an immoral sexual relationship, you implicate Jesus Christ Himself. Look at the passage. Look what it says. I didn't write it. Don't you know one of Paul's favorite teaching devices? It's the sixth time he's used it in this letter alone. He uses it again and again, or several times in the epistle to the Romans. And whenever he uses it, he's not introducing something that is not true of those to whom he writes. He's introducing it, saying, don't you know, here is a fact that is true about you. You ought to know it. You ought to be living in the light of it. But if you have forgotten it, get hold of it afresh. If you're living in the light of what I'm about to remind you of, you'd never live the way you're living. That's how he uses this terminology. Do you not know? Do you not know? He uses it twice in this passage. Don't you know, he says, that your bodies... I want every Christian to look down at your fingers and hands, your arms, your legs, your feet. Think of your primary and secondary sexual organs. That's part of your bodies. And every bit of you is united to Christ. 
So the text says, look at it, look at it. Let the truth of it sink down in. Know you not that your bodies, and it hasn't put a parenthesis, except your little toes. Your bodies, except your fingers. Your bodies, except your primary and secondary sexual organs. God has nothing to do with that dirty stuff. No, he says your bodies. From the tippy toe to the top of the head. All that constitutes your body, your body. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And now he sets before them the unthinkable. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? How deep and real is the union with Christ that makes our bodies members of Christ? It's real. Now Paul says, shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And it's as though a Corinthian says, oh, but wait a minute, Paul. What we do with the harlot, what we do when we play around with the young ladies and with the young men, when we indulge in our necking and our petting and our heavy breathing short of intercourse, I mean, that has nothing to do with being intimately joined. That's just casual sex. Paul says, no, it doesn't exist. He uses the same word. He says, your bodies are members of Christ. The union with Christ is deep and real and spiritual. He says, you take them away from Christ and make them members of a harlot. The relationship is deep and is real. There's no such thing as casual sex. Look what he goes on to say to prove it. Or do you not know, have you forgotten, that he that is joined to a harlot, a euphemism for having sexual relations, is one body? He says, don't you know? That the very nature of that relationship is that it constitutes you in a relationship of the deepest intimacy. And he says, how do we know that? He goes right back to Genesis 2.24, where God says, the two, said he, shall become one flesh. And then to add, as it were, insult to injury, he says, but he that is joined to the Lord is not only in his body joined to Christ, but becomes one spirit with Christ. That doesn't mean we become Christ, we are elevated to deity, but it means the union is not just physical, this physical frame, it is spiritual. Hence the principle, my body and my spirit are inseparably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. Wherever I go, whatever I do, Whatever I touch, whatever I look upon, I do so as one united to Christ. You see how profound the impact of this would be in an immoral society? Some young man begins to hit on a young woman who belongs to Christ. He thinks that she's in the same orbit of sexual laxity by which they've both been conditioned. She looks the young man in the eye and says, Do you know who you're fooling around with? You're fooling around with the Son of God. Well, where is He? I'm joined to Him. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But by the gracious operations of the Holy Spirit, I have been called, 1 Corinthians 1.9, into the fellowship, into the communion of Jesus Christ. I'm united to Christ. My body, my soul, my spirit, all that I am is united to the Son of God. Be careful how you treat the property that is united to Him. See how profound this impact would be that when they hear the words flee fornication, 
glorify God in your body. It is a body along with the spirit that is inseparably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. And in a way that I cannot fathom, the Bible makes plain that that union, the bodily union of the believer with Christ is not even dissolved in death. But the scripture says that the Lord will come and pay special attention to those who die in the Lord, those who sleep in Jesus, and the sleep never refers to the soul but to the body. And our union with Christ is not dissolved even in death. Precious truth. Principle number three. As though this were not enough, Paul says, let's load up all the gospel guns against this horrible sin of sexual promiscuity at Corinth. And it's this, my body, which belongs to Christ, and is united to Christ, and exists for the service of Christ, is in a unique way compromised by sexual impurity. My body is in a unique way compromised by sexual impurity. Look at verse 18. After the imperative to which we've been referring again and again, flee fornication, he brings another motivation. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication, sexual uncleanness, sins against his own body. He not only sins against the Lord, sins against the one with whom he indulges sexual uncleanness, but in a unique way, he sins against his own body. Not just his own soul. Note the text. Against his own body. In a very helpful commentary on this first letter of the Corinthian, to the Corinthians, Leon Morris writes, The Christian must not temporize with sexual impurity, but flee the very thought. Paul goes on to develop the idea that this sin strikes at the very roots of a man's being. He does not say that this is the most serious of all sins, but its relation to the body is unique. Other sins will occur to us which have their effects on the body, but this sin, and this sin only, means that a man takes that body which is a member of Christ and puts it into union which blasts his own body is the paraphrase that one commentator gives to it. Other sins against the body, such as drunkenness and gluttony, involve the use of that which comes from without the body. Excessive drink, drunkenness. Excessive food, gluttony. The sexual appetite rises from within. These sins serve other purposes. This has no other purpose than the gratification of the lusts. They, that is drunkenness, and gluttony are sinful in the excess. This is sinful in itself. And fornication involves a man in what Godet calls, quote, a degrading physical solidarity incompatible with the believer's spiritual solidarity with Christ. Paul wants them to understand that my body which belongs to Christ and is united to Christ and exists for the service of Christ in a unique way is compromised by sexual impurity. And you remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5.29 when giving direction to, to Christian husbands how to love their wives? 
says, love your wives as being your very selves, for the two should be one. For, verse 29, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It is unnatural to hate your own flesh. Paul is saying, if you love your own flesh, flee fornication. Flee it. And I need not tell you, you know, they have a word for it, STDs sexually transmitted diseases in which God seems determined even in the patterns of the horrible diseases to make it plain to man. He that sins in this area sins against his own body. A man may murder another and live with a screaming, horribly torturing conscience for his murder that he may cover up, but he doesn't self-destruct the body with which the murder was committed. It will eventually, if he doesn't repent, be destroyed when he's cast into hell. I know that. But in terms of its present effects, someone may blaspheme and have very little, if any, effect upon his body. He may steal. He may be a, a professional thief. But in a unique way, the violations of the seventh commandment terminate upon the very body that indulges the sin. That's reality. And Paul says Christians need to remember that. You say, surely that's enough. No, it isn't. Paul's going to load up the gospel gun and shoot some more at this sin. That when God's people think of the words, flee sexual impurity, glorify God in your body, their minds will be loaded with all of this gospel ammunition. Principle number four, verse 19. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made such by God, thus making my body the sole possession of God. That's the teaching of verse 19. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made such by God, thus making my body the sole possession of God. Look at verse 19. Or, once again, the know you not form of teaching, or do you not know that your body, see the crassness of it again, he doesn't say you generically, or your souls, your soma, your body, that comprised of the stuff that makes your fingers and your hair and your face and your feet and your armpits, your body, the whole shebang, your body is the temple, not the hieros, the general courts of the temple, but the naos, the inner sanctuary. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Which, this reality, you have from God. It's God that made your body the temple of His Spirit, underscoring the preciousness of the divine initiative in grace. As we were reminded in the adult class again this morning, it's God who takes the initiative. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. And Paul says to these Corinthians, you need to think of this reality. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. How did it become that? Because God in grace and in power took the initiative to call me out of darkness into light and to place His Spirit within me. But having done that, that gives God unique claims over the temple which He has made for Himself. The gods own the temple in which they are worshipped. 
the one true and living God who's made your body and mine His temple, He who in grace has made this body His temple has absolute claims over His temple. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? You see, the language, do my own thing, should never be found on the lips of the child of God. You're not your own. How do I know I'm not my own? Because the God of heaven and earth, in grace and mercy, has arrested me, brought me to his son, cleansed me, purged me, made me his child, placed his spirit within me, and he has absolute rights over that which he's made his own dwelling. Now, will that make a difference when your hormones are raging? Or when you as a married woman get a crush on a man other than your husband? And it does happen. And when at work you see a woman more attractive than your wife, and that will happen. And when all of the glossy photos and all of the images constantly paraded over the TV and over the Internet with its vile glut of pornography... When all of that is pressing in upon you, what do you need, child of God, man or woman? My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made such by God, thus making my body the sole possession of God. I have no right to use these eyes to serve that wicked, devilish God of lust and leering looks and inordinate and illicit desires and fantasies, no such foul filth should be allowed in the temple of the Holy God. This body is His temple. And you say, Pastor, you still haven't convinced me it's an appropriate communion meditation. Well, we come now to the fifth and final principle. And I think you'll see the relationship. This is most likely brought forward as a further explanation and buttressing of what he has just said. Your body is a temple of the Spirit who is in you, which you have from God, you are not your own. But I've chosen to isolate it as a fifth principle and state it this way. My body along with my spirit, because he says you were bought, not just your body. Here he now finally refers to Man as Christian, woman as Christian, in the total integrity of the body-soul existence. He doesn't do that up till now. It's always body, 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 body. Now he says, for you, in the entirety of what you are, were bought with a price. Does he need to tell us what the price is? We know what the price is. This word, agarazzo, is a marketplace word. You went into the marketplace with some money in your bag and threw some shekels on a counter to purchase something. This is the term you would use. You went to market today and you purchased something. It's marketplace language and most likely has reference to what was common in that day when slaves would be held up for auction. And some would buy the slave and then from thenceforth that slave was his purchased possession. God has come into the slave market where we were found with our chains and our manacles and our old master the devil gloating that we belong to him. And he went to the cross 
There under the anathema of God, in the language we read tonight that Pastor Jeff read from Mark 15, our blessed Savior was plunged into the abyss of outer darkness, and all the waves and billows of the wrath of God broke upon his head, and he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the price that was paid, that we might be released, that we might be the bought possessions of the living God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus. For you were bought with the price. You, in all that you are, not you, minus your sexual urges, minus your primary and secondary sexual organs, no! Everything that makes you, you, has been purchased. If I may say something that I trust will help to make it stick, there's not a member of your body that is not branded with the sign of the cross. Think of your eyes, branded with the sign of the cross. Can you look through the cross upon images on a screen, in a theater, in your home, at your computer, in a magazine, at an airport, in a local bookshop, can eyeballs stamped with the cross look upon uncleanness? Can hands marked by the cross illicitly touch erogenous zones of anyone other than one's wife or husband? You work out the rest of the details. But you must. You must. Paul says you were bought with the price. Everything that makes you you is purchased property. It's marked with the sign of the cross. You have yet to enter in to boy-girl relationships. Ask God to embed this principle in your mind. And in those moments when you may be tempted, the young man may be tempted, graciously say, you cannot touch me there. You cannot place your lips on mine. They're marked with the sign of the cross. And the one who purchased them has said, these are to be kept for my husband. These parts of my body that God gave, that they might be the expression of the intimacies of marital love, they are marked with the sign of the cross. Don't put your dirty hands on them. If you claim to have yours marked by the sign of the cross, keep them to yourself, bucko. May God help you young women to take that stance. You may be called a prude. You may be called a number of things. But to be able to come home any night from any relationship in any circumstance and get on your knees and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that by your grace I conducted myself as one bought with a price. Now, will it make a difference when you take the two imperatives, flee fornication, Run from sexual impurity of all kind. Glorify God in your body. Will it make a difference if you bring to those two imperatives these five principles? My body's been given to me to serve 
Christ the Lord in this age and in the age to come. My body and my spirit are inseparably united to Jesus Christ in a real spiritual union. My body, which belongs to Christ and is united to Christ and exists for the service of Christ in a unique way, is going to be compromised by any sexual impurity. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made such by God, and thus my body is the sole possession of God. And my body, along with my spirit, is the blood-bought property of Jesus Christ the Lord. Will it make a difference? My friend, let me state it bluntly. If that doesn't make a difference, you're a stranger to grace. There's nothing that will touch you and awaken you but God's sovereign mercy or the flames of hell, one or the other. If those things do not, as it were, have divine talons that grab you and will continue to grab you, even when passions and lust and drives and urges are raging, God's grace is sufficient to keep Corinthians pure in the midst of a society that was proverbial for its sexual uncleanness. When you want to speak of someone being really debauched, there was a word you could use. They've been Corinthianized. That's all you need to say. And everyone would know exactly what you were saying. It has just about come to the place where you can say in our day, if someone's debauched, he's been thoroughly Americanized. Talk to some of our friends from third world countries and ask them what our exported television is doing in third world countries to Americanize them. That is to suck them into the vortex of this whirlpool of ever increasing filth and moral degeneration. Children of God, if they need it, those principles, who are we to think? We don't need them. May God help us here at the table to say, Lord Jesus, as I take in my hands the symbol of the body that you took for me, that you gave up to death for me, as we take the fruit of the vine and drink it to say, Lord Jesus, this was the purchase price, the price to purchase me, to make me a temple of the living God, a temple in which a holy God dwells by the Holy Spirit, to enable me to live a holy life in all of the ramifications of that for our human sexuality in the midst of the reality of remaining sin, a seducing devil, and an evil world. God's grace is sufficient for us. May God help us then as we come to the table that here we will afresh say, Lord, brand every faculty of my mind and body with the sign of the cross. If I thought wearing a cross around my neck and one around my wrist and going and getting tattooed crosses on my hands would help, I'd be willing to bear the social stigma from most of you and get tattooed. But that won't do it, friends. It has got to be a truth that embeds itself in the mind and is kept fresh in the mind by reflection, by meditation, constantly praying through this passage. Nine-tenths of what you heard will go out by the time you go out the door. But if you go back and by reflection and meditation and reassimilation, these things will by degree take root in your heart under the blessing of the Spirit. And I trust that as a result, in that day when we're gathered home to our Lord Jesus, and we reflect upon things that went on down here, if we'll do that, I'm not sure. But if we do, 
what a blessed thing it will be to have something say, Pastor, whatever you call me there, I don't know what you call, I don't know what my name there will be, but whatever you call me, I know it will be kind and loving, and whatever I call you will be the same. Say, you know, I'm so thankful that that communion service, you didn't break off your series on sexual purity. That passage was used of God at a critical time in my life. And God, by the Holy Spirit, helped me and enabled me. And I bless God for that truth that was brought that night. And if you're sitting here, someone who says, well, fooey on all of that. My body's my own. I'll do with it what I want. Christ, God, the holy law of God, the word of God, and have no influence over me, my friend, I just remind you of one of those propositions we looked at in the seven texts that we used to support it. Willful, impenitent continuance in sexual sin will land you in hell. So the next time you think it's worth it to indulge the feelings at your fingertips and at the tips of anything else that's part of your body, remember, remember, willfully to continue is to welcome hell. May God help you to flee the wrath to come. And pray that God will make you his child. And that by his grace you will begin to live a life that reflects joyfully that you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're committed to glorify God in your body. Now to just tease you a little bit with holy teasing, I urge all married couples to go right on remembering there was no break, chapter breaks. And I want you to read the first Four verses of chapter 7. In our final message next week, we're going to see that the very God who says, your body's mine, I bought it, he assigns a lesser authority to that body, to your husband and to your wife, and says to every wife, your body is not your own. Same word, soma, it's your husband's. And he says to every husband, your body's not your own, it's your wife's. You reflect on that and ask yourself, what does this involve? In my relationship to my husband and my wife, if the God who purchased my body says my husband, in a sense, owns it in the marital relationship, and vice versa with the wife. You think through that, and I hope it will prepare your own mind as we move on into that section and several other portions of the Word of God in bringing this series to a conclusion. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the Scriptures. We thank you for the realism of the Apostles' treatment of this subject. We thank you that you allowed that Corinthian society to degenerate so far that there would be need to address these issues so thoroughly and explicitly for you saw that we would be living in a similar society and that we would need these instructions. Write them, we pray, upon our hearts. We ask that for your glory and for the good of our souls and for the credibility of our testimony, each of us will be kept sexually pure by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit working by and with the Word and by every holy resolve to flee fornication and to glorify you in our bodies. Continue with us now as we come to the table. May we know your gracious presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.